Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of K9's Talking Sense. I am your host, Cameron Ford, and of course, as usual, we are coming to you live from Scent City. Well, I won't say live because by the time you listen to it, it's a recording. But we are here this morning drinking mimosas. Thanks, Natalie. And I have a co-host, Natalie, who has uh, been, you know, interested in talking to our current guest. And our current guest is a repeat guest that I've had in the past, and that is Dr. Mary Cable. Dr. Mary Cable, thank you for coming on to the show. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Give some of our applause. There we go. From our, our, our faux audience. Um, now, like I said, we've had you on before, and I wanted to, you know, kind of you know, for those who maybe not heard the episode or may not be as familiar with who you are, just give us a quick little overview again of your background and what you've done and how you got to where you're at today. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you again for having me here. Mm-hmm. It's my first time in, uh, in yeah. your facility. I'm yes. Here at Disneyland. <laughs> I'm a great time. Um, I started uh, almost 25 years ago. Um, I was just starting out my career, so um, had a lot of time, not a lot of money. And got into search and rescue. And I was very fortunate over the course of my career to be able to bring what I learned um, in search and rescue and learned about dogs into my professional um, career as a research scientist. So I studied uh, canines primarily in the conservation arena and human remains detection. I just recently retired almost a year ago from Desert Research Institute. Mm -hmm. um, And uh, I wanted to pursue other things. So I'm... Currently teaching, training canines, I am still involved in the research community, and I'm currently running my own canines. Yeah, I and you've got your hands full with the one you have now, Mr. Dax there. Little Dax. Yeah, nice young Malinois. Mm-hmm. Um, and those who work with these breeds know that uh, they can be challenging and fun and rewarding at the same time. And I and I've that's one of the things that uh, we've seen as we've traveled – uh, United States and the world when it comes to search and rescue, there's a variety of breeds, but I would still say that Mal's German shepherds are probably the most popular breeds. Um, and then the other reason why I have the co-host this time with Natalie being here, Natalie has been able to travel and see a lot of the search and rescue teams over the past year. And I know that has had her asking questions and learning even more and more about um, the search and rescue community. So with that said, Natalie, I'll let you kind of ask the, I know you get some questions, so I'll let you kind of kick it off and you can go with the questions that you've had in your mind. Sure. So yeah, I mean, it's been really interesting for me to kind of see the search and rescue community from uh, an outside perspective. You know, at this point with all the puppies we've raised and the dogs that we've trained up, I've, you know, done a lot of different disciplines, gun detection, you know, bomb drug But the search and rescue is really different. You know, the environments you're training in is really different. The training aids are really different and come with their own kind of complications um, and different variables. And then just the, you know, I'm very comfortable and used to passive indication. And you don't necessarily always see that on the search and rescue side. And with those more active um, responses, you know, it comes with a higher arousal level and kind of its own set of challenges But that's necessary in some cases, you know, depending on that environment. But um, I guess that kind of leads into one of the questions that I had was, you know, for these newer search and rescue handlers, and I even get asked this 
And um, it will be great to have your feedback on how you kind of steer some newer handlers. But, you know, we get asked, um, you know, I'm just starting to train my dog. And you ask them, well, what is your indication? And a lot of times it's very wishy-washy because they don't know yet. They haven't settled on something or they kind of half train something and then they had issues with it. So they start training something else. And, you know, coming from more of the passive where passive indication is, you know, pretty much the only thing we do. Um, it's been challenging to kind of know where they should be with that, um, without having that, you know, personal experience, because it is totally different when you haven't per- like, I have not personally trained, um, an HR dog that's operational in the field. You know, we've done a little bit of HR work, but everything, you know, in our, more on our foundational setting, and then we pass it off, you know, to the handler. Um, so yeah, you know, basically if I'm a new handler and I'm just starting with the team or I'm just getting a dog, what should I be thinking about as far as how to, what should I do for that initial indication or how do I kind of, where should I look at to understand what would be appropriate for me? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, search and rescue is very different. It can seem a little bit complicated because um, it's really, um, it's not one operational environment. Right. And it's not one specific target. And it, the jurisdiction for search and rescue varies depending on where you are in the country. So west of the Mississippi, it's a law enforcement jurisdiction. It mm. falls under the auspices of the sheriff's office by statute, meaning that's who legally is responsible for search, rescue, and recovery. Okay. If you go to parts of New England, for example, uh, Maine is fish and game, mm. um, is responsible for it. There are some places where um, state troopers are responsible for search and rescue. Um, so it... The very first thing that you as a handler, a new handler, um, want to look at is where do I live? Um, get involved with the search and rescue team who can explain what it is that you're going to be looking for because some places do primarily live find. Some places do primarily avalanche. Some places do a mix of disciplines, um, all of which fall under search and rescue. The more senior members of your team, once they explain to you, this is what we do, this is what you can expect, uh, this is when we deploy, all of all of that operational um, information, they should be able to help guide a new handler. So when we talk about um, things like passive alerts, most of search and rescue um, does look for missing people. The, the official motto of search and rescue is so others may live. And so cadaver is really not about others living. It's mm-hmm. about bringing mm-hmm. answers home. Um, so uh, a dog that's going to be running around the wilderness, the mountains, urban areas, suburban areas, wherever, they are not going to want to have a passive alert because they could be quite far away. They could be obstructed by trees, vegetation. Right. Um, those types of dogs are also um, taught to be sent out so that the handlers can conserve energy. That's the point of the dog. Like, go up and check on top mm-hmm. of the rock pile. Go down there. Um, and so we might not be able to see them um, or necessarily hear them mm-hmm. because it's windy, it's cold, it's nighttime. So those dogs are taught um, what's called a recall refind. And they go and they find the person and the dog's like, here's my missing person. I got to get my handler back here. And they literally run back and forth between the missing person and the handler. Um does that bleed into detection work? Um, it may, generally not, but there are certainly instances where it could, and that would be totally appropriate. Mm-hmm. If you live in a part of the country where you're going to be doing different types of 
search and rescue like avalanche. We don't teach them recall refines. It's a dig. It's a dig. You can have a bark with it, but the dog is supposed to dig. You wouldn't teach that really for any other context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it depends on what you're going to be doing. Um, many search and rescue uh, teams have requirements for the beginning handler. Um, there are uh, many organizations that require a handler to do what we call a live find dog first. So it's either area search or trailing because it's the handler has so much to learn mm-hmm. and there is yep. no search and rescue school. It's not just, I love my dog yeah. and he's really smart and has a great nose. Um, we don't really want the smart ones. <laughs> <laughs> and they all have great noses. Um, so it's it's how to train your dog, but there's this whole law enforcement world of search and rescue that these folks have to fit into. Mm-hmm. Huge learning curve. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to see all the different, you know, types of indication that you might have based on your area or what's appropriate for that dog and you know, it's it's really kind of a complicated set of behaviors that some of these trainers are needing to put on a dog and and maybe like you said they don't have, you know, a ton of experience necessarily right off the bat with some of this stuff. And you're essentially creating, you know, say with, a, you know, a refined, a pretty complicated, you know, behavioral chain that you're asking the dog to perform really independently and maybe, you know, being able to do it from a distance. And um, it's a challenge. It's definitely one of the most challenging um, types of detection I think you can do. Yeah. I think, I think handlers m- sometimes make it more complicated mm. than it needs to be. <laughs> I might have really. seen that once or twice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. It's. Area dogs have been finding missing people in the mountains forever. The The search and rescue unit I belong to began in 1971. Mm-hmm. And they went up in the Sierra Nevada. I think it was the first, it, I know it was the first team to go operational in California. And this was before anybody was talking about operant conditioning, classical mm-hmm. conditioning, like mm-hmm. none of that. It was just, hey. Yeah. And they used bite dogs. These were cops yeah. who happened to be That's really scary. good skiers <laughs> yeah. going up into the mountains with German shepherds. Mm-hmm. and But they had control of their dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would go out at, for days and days at a time. I, I don't know if today's generations can fathom this, but this was before cell phones. <laughs> <laughs> they were, the phones were attached to walls. Uh-huh. Call boxes. <laughs> yes. Yep. So somebody wouldn't come home and they'd have to go look for them. Yeah. And they go out with their dogs, and even with the sophistication that we have today, back in the day, they still managed to train these dogs to go find people and come back. The most difficult part is, what do you want the dog to do at you? Mm -hmm. And that's where I think handlers kind of go awry Mm -hmm. sometimes, is what do we do at the subject, and what do you do at me? So historically, and probably the most simple one is, the dog finds the person, comes back, and jumps on you. Mm -hmm. Um, when you have a gigantic dog and a small handler, yeah. they generally shy away from that. So when I had an area dog, my dogs did a sit. And you can teach that and drive, and they love it. Mm-hmm. Um, some handlers want them to come back and bark at them. But where we see the complications is they expect the dog to go find the subject, come back, spin three times, and then right. bark, 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 and then go back to the person and bark at them, and then come back and jump and bark. That's where I think you're going with it, mm-hmm. where it – it's not supposed to be that complicated. Yeah. And I think, and I've seen a lot where the withholding of reward comes so far down the chain that the dog is so frustrated in all the other previous areas. Um, 
And in that frustration, we start seeing behaviors, emotional responses, kind of like the vending machine not working kind of thing for the dog. Um, and the example I gave more recently this past weekend was I, the handler had a refined. And I said, well, how often in this chain do you also reward near you? Because the dog has to come to you and then go back out. But if the reward is always out, then coming to you is also confusing and less motivating and things like that. Where if you randomized and you reward, you know, lightly or small, you know, a mid, mid-level mid reward at you and then going back out, it creates the motivation for the dog to make that initial, hey, I found somebody, where's mom or dad, run there, and in training, get reinforcement there at a certain level that's appropriate, and then again, goes back out and gets reinforcement maybe at a jackpot level uh, at, the, at the source, um, in this case, live find. And... Um, you know, when I explained that, it hadn't been thought of in that way, breaking it down into small segments. And that was a lot what Natalie uh, has been looking at it from her perspective as a dog trainer, breaking a chain of events down, creating reward at certain pieces, and then it all comes together. And then you can, of course, variable reward at various stages of that. Then meanwhile, the dog goes, okay, I know reward's going to happen. It may happen here. It may happen here. And I think we all know reward location is a important aspect in training. It can accomplish certain things. If I reward here, I get this. If I reward here, this happens. And and sometimes varying that reward location up creates some more clarity for the dog too versus being so predictable that it's always here. And if all of a sudden there doesn't happen, then we start seeing again back to that emotional or that reactive response uh, starts coming out. Now, uh, I wanted to bring up, because you kind of brought it, you, you said it as you described there's a varying level of standards. So somebody who's new comes in, well, if you're in, you know, Idaho versus um, Arkansas, you know, if someone's looking to get into search and rescue, it's kind of all over the place as to what's required to get in. Speak a little bit about that. So those that are like thinking about doing it, you may end up with a group that says you have two years of X, Y, and Z to do first, or the other one is like, hey, you got a dog at Barks? You're a search and rescue handler, throw an orange vest on, let's go. So I'll let you kind of expand upon that from what you've seen, your perspective. And I know we've had these conversations about goals, what we would like to see start happening more frequently in the industry. The United States is so big Mm -hmm. and so variable from a geographic perspective, mm-hmm. meaning some places has big mountains, some places has big swamps, some places is frozen most of the time. Um, so you overlay that with the variable jurisdiction in terms of who's responsible yep. for search and rescue and public land. So there are parts of the country where we have a lot of search and rescue canine groups who never get called mm-hmm. because – the density of people is so great. All you have to do is walk a mile and you're going to hit a road. Yeah. And so those are places that I personally don't ever want to live. But if you live there, you're, you're going to want to take a look at that. If you really want to do search and rescue, do you want to do it with a dog or do you want to do search and rescue? In which case, maybe you would expand your, um, the, the type of response. Maybe you're a ground pounder. Maybe you learn how to fly a drone. Maybe you do cave rescue. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But there are certainly places of the country where you're going to go through multiple dogs mm-hmm. and you're never going to get deployed. And um, 
and you have to do it because you love to train. Yeah. There are other parts of the country where, um, yeah, you're right. They, the, there's so much public land. There's so much open space. People get lost Mm -hmm. and they just get swallowed up by the landscape and there's not a lot of, of population. And so you have a dog and your sheriff is responsible and they don't care Mm-hmm. because we have to find little Johnny. Yeah. So uh, I don't care that your dog isn't certified. Yeah. And they have the legal right to do that. I'm mm-hmm. not being critical of the sheriff's office. Yep. I'm just, yeah. these are sort of the two it's ends the of need. the spectrum. Yeah. Right. It's an emergency. It doesn't make it right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and then we have everything in between. And so people who want to get into search and rescue with the canine specifically, um, there's just there's a big learning curve mm-hmm. and you need to be respectful of <clears throat> what what your need is, how often you're going to get called. Do you really like to train dogs or do you just want to get out and try and get on the news? Um, because that's not fair to the victim either. Of course. And then, like you mentioned, geographically, there is so much difference in the United States. You know, someone who gets into search or rescue in the Midwest, even in the Northeast, you have mountains and you have snow and you have things like that. So a type of search and rescue dog in those environments versus the search and rescue handler in Florida who's working in a swamp environment right. and looking for either a live and or cadaver in that environment is totally different than the other environments. And though, like you said, when we say search and rescue, it incorporates a broad spectrum. And I think because of that broad spectrum is also why we can see so many different, like, accepted things within the community. Right. Um, And some have really good valid points of how they um, look at something because they're seeing it from their point of view. But what I find you know, unique. And it's just, just thanks, of course, again, to social media. When you put us all on the internet, then all right. of a sudden the standards should be the same. Right. And it's not. So I always implore a lot of people who listen to this show or uh, engage in conversation on social media, you're looking at it from your lens and that could be good or that could also give you a misunderstanding of what a question might be coming from when someone says, Hey, I need help with my dog's alert on search and rescue. Well, it really depends on what you do. And, you know, it brings us forward to where we are currently getting to now, which is recommended practices and standards when it comes to um, how some things are done or can be evaluated. Um, Speak a little bit about how we're evolving in the search and rescue community when it comes to things like that. You actually sit on a board and these things are being looked at. So give listeners a point of view of where we're at and what some of the bigger goals are when it comes to these uh, standards and organizations. That's a big question. Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) You might have to steer me back. Sure. Um, I can tell you that I think search and rescue has evolved uh, tremendously in some very positive ways Mm -hmm. um, since I started. And there are some ways that I think it has actually stagnated a bit. 
Um, some of it has to do with just how people are. You brought up social media and um, it's really easy to sit behind a computer yep. and be an expert. Yep. Um, we also have cell phones and in-reach devices. And so the, um, the days of what we would call campaign searches, which are uh, multi-day, like maybe even looking a week or two, mm-hmm. you get flown up into the high country. Obviously, I'm talking about the American West. Mm-hmm. And you're dropped off and you don't have comms. Uh, Mm -hmm. except once a day when the aircraft flies over to check on everybody. And you're just, you're looking for a needle in a haystack. Yeah. Um, We don't see that so much anymore. Um, And, and we don't have the type of people in society that really has the skill set for the most part and the interest to do that with the dog. Mm -hmm. So um, that type of searching is, um, not as common. I'm not going to say it disappears because I actually just looked at the stats for California mm-hmm. for uh, 2022. And most of the calls for service for dogs were, um, I can't say most of the calls for service, but most of the highest number by discipline was area dogs looking for lost and missing people. Okay. So we didn't have, um, you know, it wasn't all the calls required area dogs, but when you need uh, some help finding mm-hmm. a live person, you're going to throw every resource you possibly can. Yeah. So, um, but those types of searches that we're getting, um, at least in the West are, they'll last maybe up to five or six days mm-hmm. for missing people, mm-hmm. but it's not like they happen every weekend. Yeah. So, um, so that's how things have shifted a little bit where it used to be one dog did it all. Yeah. This was before specialization. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and did they do a good job at it? Uh, maybe I say it's relative, right? Because when you, all you had at that time was that, well, you compare it to when you're missing someone and you don't find them, Mm -hmm. you don't know if you missed them or if you, you don't know if they were out of the area. Yep. That's so we don't really have, we know about the fine. You never know what you miss. You don't know what you miss. Yep. That's still true today. The number one rule of making a find is your target has to be in your search area. I just want to remind everybody. (laughs) So, um, yeah, now I forget where we're going. So, so going with to standards. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. So, so then we got more sophisticated and now we have cadaver, we have water, we have avalanche, we have trailing and, I Crime do sit scene. on the American Academy of Forensic Sciences uh, Standards Board, and we have, um, I think we've just completed revising Standard 076, which is Human Remains Detection for Land. Mm-hmm. That's a committee of um, people from across the country, and we have had lots of energized discussions oh, I bet. <laughs> about um, needs. Sure. And just the education within the group about the call for service, the, the geography, the types of mission, Mm -hmm. um, some parts of the country, we would never do that. The always never. Yep. Um, for example, with, with water search, you're not going to let your dog jump out of the boat where Mm -hmm. you have alligators. Sure. We do not have alligators in Lake Tahoe Yeah. or in in the West. So our dogs can jump out where it's safe. Mm -hmm. No big deal. But some folks are horrified by things like sure. that. So if you're going to create a standard, you have to be very careful if it's going to be a, a overarching, universally accepted standard, yeah. that you're not 
inhibiting groups from doing something that makes a lot of sense for them mm-hmm. because you don't do it in your area. Yeah. I think that when it comes to standards, there's some basic things that should be covered. Your dog needs to tell you about the target. Mm-hmm. I don't care what the behavior is mm-hmm. necessarily. I do care. For some <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But regardless of what is mandated by your group, if you have a recall refine, yep. a sit, a bark, a down, dance on your head, mm-hmm. whatever it is, uh, it has to tell you about that. And that, sh- that should be a universally accepted thing. This mm-hmm. whole thing where you can just read your dog's body language and it doesn't have to go to final response. And it's how you feel about it. And does the evaluator feel like you feel okay about it? And it's all about feelings. Mm-hmm. I think I think that needs to... Uh, that needs to drop away and we need to come forward mm-hmm. and and rely on our training. Mm-hmm. We have access to some really good trainers across the country now. And why aren't we incorporating that? So, you know, should, should dogs not be allowed to jump out of boats ever? No. But should a dog be able to pinpoint the location of the submerged victim so that you can send an ROV or a diver or confirm it with sonar? Yes. Yeah. It's... Without a doubt, a, a complicated system, you know, and I sit on different committees within that same organization and it's unique because, you know, the joke always is, you, you know, the only two things uh, dog, tra- you know, two dog trains agree upon is the third one's messed up. So the dealing with trying to create standards, you know, and I see it from the drug dog firearm, explosive, electronic, et cetera, where pretty much no matter where you're at, you're going to be doing a relatively the same thing. Um, the complexities in SAR community, you're definitely different than those communities. So just even trying to get them to agree on that, uh, I can only imagine yeah. the difficulties that come in this. And we see that when we and travel. There, there's, there's just so many variables that you guys deal with that's unique to SAR that you obviously, in any form of detection, we deal with a ton of variables. But the what you guys deal with on like the um, the amount and because of the location specific, like all of that stuff, it just makes it so different and and so challenging to to have something like that. But but absolutely, like a minimum standard, like yeah, your dog has to be able to find the thing and tell you about it. Like yep. that should be universal across yep. all of our detection disciplines, right? Control of your dog, right? You know, specifically, I would say. SAR has it more difficult or the requirement is stronger in that side of things because um, your dog's working at working with you at a longer distance, you know, so you need to have a recall. What if there's you have hazards like yeah. uh, <clears throat> down power lines? Yep. I know someone who lost his dog to a down um, power line, railroad tracks, ravines, mm-hmm. um, many, I can't say most, but a lot of searches happen at night because Mm -hmm. what happens? Someone doesn't show up for dinner. They went hiking, they went skiing, they went boating, they did whatever, and they don't come home for dinner. And so we are operating at night. And it's fantastic when there's snow on the ground and there's a full moon. It's like daytime out there. Mm. Yeah. But um, that's, that's not always the case. So you have a dog that's running around at a distance, working the air currents, trying to find that. Some people put bells on their dogs so they can hear them. Um, sometimes we put lighted collars on them, mm-hmm. but they're they can range quite a distance. Yeah, and you can't see a dog through the trees. 
You can't see them through the shrubs. That would be scary just from, like, the wildlife perspective. You know, like, us just going to Arizona, like, we're at a, you know, taking a break with the dogs and potting them. And I'm like, there's a coyote, like, just staring at us, watching watching me potty my little spaniels. That would probably be a delicious snack. That's got to be kind of scary when you're letting the dog range out like that at night. And there's all sorts of other stuff out Chupacabras. there. Chupacabras. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, think about in, um, in uh, Montana and yeah, Idaho. Man. So yeah. I've, I've searched in Idaho. And I just, every time I heard the crackle of a twig, I was yeah. like, ah, moose, wolves, right. <laughs> grizzlies, black bear, like everything is out to kill you. Yeah. yeah. That's one of the really cool things, though, I will say. So I can no longer look at a landscape and mm. not be thinking, I don't want to search that or yeah. I search that. <clears throat> and the the handlers in these different geographic regions, they just learn to deal with stuff. Yeah. So the handlers that live in grizzly country and wolf country – They, I can't say that like, they're like, oh, that's fine. But they certainly understand it and they um, accept the risk and they know how to deal with it. And there are places like I live in rattlesnake country Mm -hmm. and I live in rockfall country and I, we don't have, we do have wolves. They're coming down into Northern California um, and we have moose in Northeastern Nevada, but there are things handlers come out and they're like, oh my God, how do you deal with that? And it's, yeah, it's just what we're used to. It's like the alligators down in the yeah. south, you know, Florida, all water, the moccas- water, water moccasins. Yes, yeah, they all exactly. want to kill your dog. Yes. You've got copperheads, you yep. have coral snakes, mm-hmm. you've got alligators. Like, no, thank you. Yeah. You can't walk near the shoreline, depending on where you're at, without something either chasing you or potentially surfacing and grabbing your dog. I mean, I think we've seen some of the videos where gators have done that. Um, and uh, yeah, it, but those handlers are used to it. Right. I, I know various <laughs> teams that are down there. And they understand what they're doing and how to work it and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Do you yeah. see that um, change the dog selection for those type? Like, obviously, like if I had somewhere like that, I wouldn't want to have a, like the spaniels. I'd be like, yeah. no, that's, they're going to be looking at that like it's lunch. <laughs> right. At least if it's like a big shepherd. Chicken walking be, around. Yeah. You know? <laughs> at least if it's like, you know, big shepherd or like a bigger looking dog, they're going to have to think about it for a second. Is that worth it? You know? Right. I think all of those things factor in, but. But those we can't mandate those in standards, yeah, um, because it's yeah they're just little tricks of the trade. It's a comfort level. How do you right, deal with this? Right. Things like when do you deploy? I mean, certainly when we're dealing when we're talking with snakes, there are places in the summertime when it's warm. Mm. Sorry, we don't. You just don't search it because yeah. you can't. The risk is just the too risk great. is too yeah. great. Um, I actually had, unfortunately, I did have a. A dog that was in training on my team died from a rattlesnake mm. bike to the face. Um, it was terrible and tragic. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so you yeah. learn from those types mm-hmm. of mistakes. In, in the community I came from, it's lessons learned in blood. You know, when someone injured or dies, policies change, tactics change. Um, and the same is going to be, obviously, like in this world, in search and rescue, uh, adjustments are made based on, you know, mission history and the success and or problems that came from that. Um, let's go into the handler aspect a little bit. So talk about what's important to become or qualities needed in a search and rescue handler. I was just thinking that. Yep. Because what I'm picturing in my mind, as we talk about the geography, we talk about the dog selection, we talk about safety, 
being dumped off by helicopter yeah. in the middle of nowhere, whether you're in the Tetons or um, in the Cascades or wherever it is, that is big country. And it is so you're so much more than a dog handler. Mm-hmm. You're not a handler who's searching around a vehicle and Yes, you have to worry about traffic and things mm-hmm. like that. But that's a three-minute search, Max. So you get dumped off someplace, and you're wearing a three-day backpack, mm-hmm. and you have food for your dog. <clears throat> you have a radio. Maybe you have a sat phone now these days. And they give you a map, and here's your search area, or it's loaded onto your phone. Mm-hmm. Many of us still want a paper map because yep. batteries die. Yep. Mm-hmm. Things yep. to think about. Yep. Um, and you got to figure out where you are. Where's your LZ so you can be extracted? Um, And then you have to figure out your search strategy and you have to be able to read your dog and you have to do all of the search functions. Let's say you find your person. You are the medic. Mm -hmm. Do they have a broken leg? How can I communicate what type of um, extraction? Do we need to do it by helicopter? Do I need a litter? Are they going to carry us out? Are they on the side of a cliff? Um, Can I keep this person alive? Is this person alive? Do I have to bed down with them mm-hmm. until morning and daylight mm-hmm. so that we can actually extract them? But Mary, I thought it was just let, let my dog go out and it barks <laughs> and I'm a hero. I was touched by watching a TV show where I saw Fifi save somebody and I want to do that. I mean, there's way more than just my want to feel good and go out there and save someone's life. I have to consider things like, you know, being physically fit to go out there and do the job, thinking about my education on you know, dealing with trauma, my education on crime scene prevent or crime scene protection. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I flip the coin now. Okay, yes, these standards are great to have, but I'm a volunteer and my area has nothing. So what do I do? You're a volunteer, and and you know, I'm a volunteer. I, you know, my my region where I live has a search oh, and rescue group. Oh. We're all volunteers. <clears throat> but it's just the five of us or the six of us and the local sheriff, Jim Bob, you know, he's out here in Arkansas. He's been the sheriff for 56 years and he's happy. <laughs> so he doesn't think, you know, what we do is just fine. How do this, how does this individual, how do we get trained so we can become better? Or if I'm somebody who wants to get into this and I want to, what resources are out there? Um, and how do we move that needle forward right. to really get people the right kind of education so they can go do this stuff? That, that's one of the <clears throat> the ways that search and rescue, I think, has really um, advanced, mm-hmm. kind of circling back to earlier, because we do have all this technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a, a lot of resources now online that people can go to if you want to enhance your skills not necessarily for dog training so much as the other skills like mapping compass, like GPS, um, Sartopo, the mapping program. That's what a a lot of agencies are going to. Um, That's not necessarily intuitive for people to use. Uh Um, But those, those types of skills um, you can certainly look for online. If it comes to wanting to improve your skills with your dogs, it's always been this way. I think it will always be this way. You're going to have to suck it up and drive yeah. and go yeah. find a, a seminar, find a trainer. And even if it's just once to get out of your, mm-hmm. your area to have 
someone else's eyes on you Mm -hmm. um, and have them just take a look and experience it and see what's out there. Yeah. I mean, this is why a lot of, and there's a ton more than there ever used to be, but the canine trauma courses, because Mm -hmm. you have to deal with your dog being injured potentially too. Right. So it's not just the human medical aspect. It's also the dog emergency medical aspect that we have to consider. Um, And those courses are becoming more and more out there. I know Jimmy Hatch from Spike's Canine Fund is like constantly sponsoring and paying for these classes uh, that are going to be free to students to attend because his nonprofit pays for them. Then there's other nonprofits too that do the same thing. Um, But it's important uh, that, like you said, the individual it's more than just having your own warm and fuzzy. If you're willing to take on that responsibility to get into search and rescue, it's incumbent upon you to then go do everything you can to educate yourself, to do everything you can to be physically fit to do the job, to be able to know that potentially, let's just say the tornadoes rip through North Texas and Oklahoma and whatever they do every year that you may have to search large neighborhoods that have been wiped out and you're walking for miles and you're working your dog. Um, Because the last thing that really needs to happen is that the rescue team that's there for the victim go and have to deal with you because now you're out and you become the victim that they're dealing with because you can't physically do the job. So we have to be honest with ourselves, even though there may not be a physical standard in some search and rescue groups. Does it mean you get away with going, well, I, I can, I can still do it. You need to have an honest assessment many times. Can I do this? And that's in all disciplines. It's not just search and rescue. We preach this in a lot of other detection dog disciplines because, or canine disciplines because you are become a liability. And the mission suffers if you can't do the job. And we have to reallocate, you know, resources to deal with you now that we weren't counting on. Now you're taking away from the potential because Murphy's Law usually comes into play, right? When you can't do it, you know, you're cramping or you're having dehydration issues or heart problems or whatever. Lo and behold, the victim is also found. And now we have to split resources that were only in play for one victim, Now we have to all of a sudden deal with multiple victims. And I can give a lesson learned from the special operations. There's training that's done for that. We purposely put teams through, um, and this is law enforcement and special operations in the military, dealing with downed operators, downed law enforcement, while there's something bad still happening. And I, I think that needs to continue happening. Even those lessons learned from that community can be passed on to the search and rescue community and employed into different scenarios that go on for search and rescue. Hey, we're going to do some search and rescue training. Okay, everybody's out doing their thing. Oh, we have two search and rescuers down and their dog. What do we do now? Um, and then learn how to deal with that while they're still operating and doing their mission and looking for this victim or recovering this victim. So... It's, uh, you know, like I said, it's it's more than just the warm and fuzzies aspect, but, uh, you know, I want people to, you know, there's a lot of good people that go out there and do this kind of stuff, but also think and consider a lot of things that come with that responsibility. If you're willing to step up, then step up all the way and know you can do it. Now, Natalie, do you have, I know you had other questions or things that you had thought of. I just didn't know if you, uh, you know, thought of more things or had anything else to ask. 
Um, well, we talked a little bit earlier just about that, which this kind of goes into what we've been talking about, but that, that handler aspect of really, you know, having the, the time and putting the energy into specifically training the handler, not just the dog. A lot of times we look at it like, oh, how can I train my dog? How can I do this with my dog, my dog, my dog? But we kind of forget about that side of the handler and, and not just, you know, with um, all of that other, you know, all these other aspects that you need to be able to do as a SAR handler that could get deployed like that, but also just, you know, reading your dog and, yeah. and having some of those skills and, you know, being a little bit of a trainer because you are, you know, if you take this on, you are your own trainer a lot of times and you have to be able to, you know, work through some of that and understanding, you know, operant conditioning and classical mm-hmm. conditioning and all these other factors. Um but yeah, I mean, do you see that as a, a big thing that people are, are we focusing more on that or is it very heavily dog focused still? Um, I so appreciate you bringing that up. <clears throat> when I ran Desert Tortoise Canine Program, I probably spent 85, 90% of my time managing my handlers. And mm-hmm. these were professional handlers that I paid, I trained, mm-hmm. had a master trainer that came out from my program for a decade. Um. The dog part, quite frankly, that's really easy. Yeah, mm-hmm. dogs are biddable. You select the right dog. They They're so forgiving of us. <laughs> Absolutely. Nobody spends time. You brought up time on the handlers, mm-hmm. and I don't know what it is about search and rescue, but it's quite the little territorial group of clicks. And, and the good thing is, I see it in the other worlds too. So oh, you guys everywhere. are you guys are in good company. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And it's true. Um, and you're right. The only thing that two handlers can agree on is what the third one's doing wrong. <laughs> yeah. So um, so it can be really discouraging for new folks in particular to come in. You're trying to Helen Keller your way through this right, world. Yeah. You have this dog, first-time handlers, that you love because you are overly attached to your, to your dog um, and then you have all these different voices. <clears throat> I believe, I do believe that most people who are bringing up new folks, I think mm-hmm. they're really trying to help them. They may not have the best bedside manner, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I do think that they're trying to help um, because it's such a diversified industry, at least the search and rescue is, because there's almost nothing universal yeah. um, about it. There's all these different opinions, and I'm not a fan of training by committee, um, but that's often what happens. Yeah. So I go and I train with Natalie until you tell me that my dog is fat, and then I never <laughs> want to see you again. Sure. So I'm going to go work with Cameron. Yeah. And your two approaches might be very different, and that's how you end up with people yeah. changing their right. color yep, absolutely. or doing really dramatic stuff that um that is detrimental yeah so i often wonder this is it better just to stick with someone yeah right wrong or indifferent i'm gonna get you there and just go through one handler's training program in my with my team um i want to put the foundation on all of my dogs for whatever discipline it Mm -hmm. is and i um so lack of a better way to put it, I don't allow my new people to go train with others unless I am there or unless I know the, that training lead so I can communicate, here's where we are, yeah, here's absolutely. what I want, because I have the big picture in mind, yeah. 
And once that foundation is solid on that team and my handlers have an under, my handlers have an understanding yeah. of this is what we're doing. This is why off you go, mm-hmm. then go see the rest. <clears throat> of Yeah. Them. I go think that's, yeah, people. that's so valid. And we, we see that so often. Well, I started doing this, but then this person said I should do this Yes, and they never go all the way through. They're like hopping around these different methodologies and at the end of the day, the dog is like, I don't know what's, I don't know what's going on. I've been in like three different training methods. Right. I don't know what is up and what is down. And even if maybe, even if it was, you know, maybe not the best initial method, sticking with that until you get, you know, more forward progress, until you have something that looks like a trained dog, right? you know, it's especially for a new handler that isn't a trainer and maybe doesn't know you know, to bounce around like that. It's super confusing to them too. Um, I think that's a great point. I mean, we see that in all dog training, you know, like even in the pet world, you hear, you know, you get a new client that comes to you that says, yeah, I've had five other dog trainers. The trainers are not the problem with that dog, Mm -hmm. right? We're not sticking with anything. We're not seeing anything through. And that causes a lot of issues on its own. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so that's something that I think about a lot. Yeah. Um, when we talk about about the handler part of it, even at a more fundamental level, I know you and I talked about this a little bit earlier, which is some people are just, they're natural. They're, they can read animal mm-hmm. behavior. And we're talking about dogs, so we'll just talk about dogs. They can read dogs, yep. and they're just born with it. And then there are some people who, with some development, like it's in them, but it not not necessarily to a great extent, but they can be taught. Yeah. You show them and they're like, Yeah, I see it. But there are people who absolutely cannot read mm-hmm. dog behavior, dog body language. And I've had some of them come through my various programs. And those people, no matter how good a heart they have, th- they are not cut out for this. Mm-hmm. Because if you cannot read mm-hmm. the communication method that a dog has which is not by talking English to us, but by a million little subtle changes in their body carriage, you're not going to be able to do this because you can't read your dog. Just because I'm tall doesn't mean I can play basketball. (laughs) You know, we we make a lot of assumptions that, oh, well, I can, I can do anything. I'm just working a dog. And like you guys are both bringing up, there's so many things that the handler needs to be good at, you know, to do the job, regardless of whatever it is in dogs. And one of the things I I see, and we I've heard it through the various industries, is like you just said, Natalie, more focused attention on handler education because so many of them, now I'll bring it back. I even strain to say this is a search and rescue thing more than other places, but because I see it all the time in the law enforcement world, is do-it-yourself dog training. Mm-hmm. They ha- there's it's a, let's just say in the law enforcement community, it's a twenty-five person department, and they have one canine handler. And the nearest agency that they can work with is you know fifty miles away. And because they're a small department, means they can't go, and it's hard for them to get get out anywhere. So they just do it themselves. Same in the search and rescue community, you have handlers that are in various areas. The limited experience of those together at that one spot is minimal, so they're they're doing the best they can, but it's the right. do-it-yourself dog training. And it's like you both said, well, 
let's try a little bit of this. Let's try. I reached out. I was on a Facebook group and I read that someone said, this is a good thing. Or I went to Learberg and downloaded, you know, whatever videos. And on that video was this. So, and when you're doing it yourself, though admirable, it's difficult at the best, you know, and we've all seen what that looks like as a result, because just like you said, um, I, I would say one of the biggest things I see that's challenging across the board is people's timing, you know, timing about communication, when to reward, how to read, what's going on. They may pick it up, but it was a fourth time the dog showed the change of behavior. They didn't pick up the first three. So by the time they read the fourth, the dog is already going, I don't know what's going on. And then like you guys both said, the constant change or adapting to something that is newly learned or seen through any number of resources. Um, Can I? Yeah, go ahead. Um, What pops into mind that I hear a lot, I think you've heard some of this, and we certainly see it a lot on social media. When people ask about what should my dog's final response Mm -hmm. be or alert be, a lot of people talk about what the dog likes to do. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that's a trap that people fall into. I think that the handler needs to make that decision, not the dog. Based on the mission. And, and, and yeah, here's, here's why. Maybe right now the dog likes to sit. But maybe later the dog would want to lie down. Or maybe <laughs> later the dog would like to jump on you. And then the handlers fall into that trap. They're like, sure. They, they didn't come into it with the mindset of my dog's alert is going to be this. They went into yes. it. Well, uh, you know, one time my dog started barking. <laughs> so I just thought I'd go with that. Mm-hmm. And now my alert is sometimes it's a, it's a jump on me. Yep. Sometimes it's a jump and a bark. Sometimes they bite me in the boob. Yep. <laughs> oh yeah. They do all of these things. Yes. And I think that's, yes, we hear that so much and it's, very frustrating as a trainer because if you cannot tell me what your dog is supposed to do, how in the world is your dog going to know what they're supposed to do? And I think that lack of clarity for the dog of not having criteria, of not having, this is how you communicate and this is a reliable way that your owner is going to listen to you is really frustrating for the dog to yes. not have something. Yeah. Like you said, maintaining criteria, like you even brought up to your nose work students, you know, because they have similar alert things they've been told i think the difference with what we see like in our nose work or even just our like our you know normal detection that's different than sar is it's a much smaller thing like it's easier for me to be like is it a nose freezer or sit versus is it the dog's gonna run a source then run to you and then jump on you in the bar like it's so much more behavior that you see in sar but yeah it's across the board and i think the issue that that kind of comes from is not having a training plan Mm-hmm. They just, you come into it and like you're saying, you do a bit of this and then you do a bit of that, but you don't actually have a training plan for like, for the dog, like yep. that you're following, you're following along. So it's something that you look at and you go, what do I, what's my end behavior that I want? And then what are the little pieces I need to break down in order to train that? And then after that, you're following along with that. And of course you're going to make adjustments based on the dog as you go, but you're basic kind of blueprint is going to stay the same Mm -hmm. and that you know that takes you through a lot of difficult things that you're not like you know like you said well today we're doing this and then tomorrow we're going to do this and you're so let's just bring it to where i wanted to go anyway (laughs) records keeping 
Yeah. So that's the other aspect you're known for in the dog world is record keeping and the legal responsibilities that come from good record keeping. Um, so I would say maybe you could start off with general and then hone it into the search and rescue audience and then maybe even the narcotic audience as well because they are the ones legally that get challenged the most is obviously narcotics dogs. But even though like we talked about the other day, search and rescue dogs records haven't been scrutinized as let's say a narcotics dog, but there's always the first. So though it may not happen yet, who wants to be that first one whose records are crappy? And then, but we did talk about a little bit like the Casey Anthony case where they did kind of go through some things that were in documentation because that handler, uh, the initial one was a law enforcement handler. Um, but just go with, with, like I said, start off generally and then kind of you can weave it into the specialties. <clears throat> yeah, record keeping is it's really important. Keep in mind, I come from a scientific background dealing with data. Um, and it's that's just that's a way of life. Yeah. It should be a way of life for dog handlers. It is a way of life for the law enforcement canine handlers because they are called into court. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a gap in search and rescue in parts of the country and um, – not just parts of the country, but with different teams that do have different specializations. Mm-hmm. So I have heard plenty of times from search and rescue handlers. I don't need to keep records. Why I'm just going out to find the last person. Some search and rescue handlers mistakenly believe that they are exempt from good because of good Samaritan laws. Mm-hmm. But let me make it very clear that you have a, when you are on a search and rescue team, and you accept a mission, you have a duty to act, and you are not covered under Good Samaritan because mm-hmm. you're not a Good Samaritan. You are deployed. Mm-hmm. So you need to make sure that you are documenting your training of all sorts so that should there become an incident, you have the ability to demonstrate um, that you were not operating vicariously, mm-hmm. that you were, in fact, trained and certified for whatever it is, whether it's CPR or first aid or um, packaging, patient packaging, or your dog going out and not missing the person so that they end up dead. Um, So that's sort of big picture. Why do we need record keeping for search and rescue? Because we live in a litigious society Mm -hmm. and um, search and rescue folks are being called to do more and more law enforcement functions. They're not giving us guns and we're not arresting people. But we are going out and searching evidence for evidence collection, yes. In officer involved shootings, for example. Um, or in my line of work in criminal cases. Uh, so the uh, the need for record keeping, if you want to think about it this way, it's really for our our protection. And the way that I teach it to my handlers is why wouldn't you give yourself credit mm-hmm. for all of the time and effort and money that you're spending to go out and train your dog twice a week or wherever it is to, to pay to come to seminars mm-hmm. and pay for that trainer or the online course. Hang on to those certificates. Put it in your curriculum vitae mm-hmm. with the dates and, and put those in your binder or scan them in and put them in your folder. All that time that you spend training your dog is time that you are giving back to your community. Mm-hmm. Record it and be proud that yep. you're doing it. So that's kind of big picture for search and rescue. Like maybe instead of, oh, what a pain in the ass. I don't <laughs> yeah. Have to do yeah. That. Well then, well, but a lot of times they get asked, well, what should they document? You know, but like, right. so if I'm doing a training session today, like for example, you're going to go out and do a search today. 
what do they document? Do they document, you know, how do they document what they found? How do they document the size of the area that they searched? Do you document how long your search was for? Do you document how long the potential training aid was put out there for? So, and then should, here's the big one. I was told by my trainer, you don't ever write when the dog does something bad. Right. So, and that I've seen on both sides of the house. I see it on the law enforcement side. I see it in the search and rescue. The mentality is treat the legal system like mushrooms. Feed them shit and keep them in the dark. <laughs> so you basically do, you, do, you don't ever write down when you do something bad. Now, I will say law enforcement has, for a number of other reasons, realized, oh, the more transparent we are, the more we do highlight that we have errors, but we've also gone around and f- figured out what our corrective actions are. We list all of those things versus the old school was my records look perfect. Here's my four inch binder. Have fun reading that um, to now going, yep, my session today, my dog did this in the session. The next session, we have a corrective action of this. And then the subsequent session after that, these are the results that we saw. Um, I'm seeing that more and more, thank goodness. But even just recently at the most uh, current seminar we were at, the search and rescue handler was like, I was told you just put down the good stuff. You write down, we searched, we found, and that was it. So I'll let you kind of expand both directions, but even more specifically what should be documented and what we should do. Big picture. When you're looking at your life's work with training, you want to capture, just think of it this way. You just want to capture that you're training um, under a variety of circumstances, that you're doing a whole bunch of different things, that there's variability, and you're setting the stage for what your typical operational environment is. And that is what you are, the conditions and the locations, the geography, the types of calls that you typically respond to, that's what you should be training to. Mm-hmm. I do not go to Florida to train very often. <laughs> yeah. Because... I do not typically go and train in the Everglades or deploy there. Um, So that's not important. But what is important for any handler is a train in the day, a train at night, a train when it's hot, a train when it's cold, a train in the rain, a train in the snow. Um, It doesn't have to be every time and it doesn't have to be equal amounts. You just have to be able to show that, hey, my dog has trained in this environment. Um, With... Uh, training aids for talking about live fine dogs. Um, you know, you want to train with a, as many different variants, different people as you can. It is difficult to get children mm-hmm. and I'm not mm-hmm. sure that it's always legal because there's liability mm-hmm. and you have to have waivers. Anybody under 18, most search and rescue. Don't groups. do it in California. They're bound to find a problem with it. Some right? way. They <laughs> you can't Child even- labor law. You made that kid work. Are you kidding me? There's ways to do it if you have the adult with yeah. them, but the reality is that children have different proportions, and um, it's it's just it's a, it's a variable. It's a variable. Mm-hmm. So if you have the opportunity to do it, um, you know, elderly people, um, people of different uh, racial just, backgrounds, absolutely. Um, yeah, there's all kinds of things. Even as a police canine handler, when tracking, mm-hmm. it was important for us to document the race of the individual that we were tracking. And part of that was to show that, you know, dogs weren't just honing in on a particular race or another, number one. Um, Number two, dogs, you know, there was a, a, and I forget because this was many, many years ago, but 
the research had kind of shown that obviously different races of people exert differently as it comes to ascent. And a lot of it was related to dietary Mm -hmm. aspects. And in an environment with that was uh, predominantly one race or another, the dogs were actually very astute at knowing this is this race, this is that race, just by the scent coming off and acknowledging that. And then if you add in the history, in this case, in uh, police dogs, it was apprehension, and apprehension is rewarding to the dog in a level, um, that the positive association to a individual race increased a little bit um, as far as like the dog could weed out. If you put, let's say, a bunch of people around a perimeter that aren't the target, but the target is in the search area, the dog would ignore all the non-targets on the perimeter and go, oh yes, there, there's the one I'm looking for. That happens both ways, but there was just that additional aspect the dog could link and context generalize to, yep, that's what I'm looking for. So I can definitely imagine in search and rescue having, because you don't know what you're looking for. There's going to be a huge variety, like you said, from children to elderly to Alzheimer's patients to autism. Autistic, yes, absolutely. Their their movements are going to be different. Set aside, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That's that also comes back to the handler and understanding search uh, strategy. Search strategy, we call it last person behavior. Yep. Um, that's a whole. Oh yeah. There's so much to the search <laughs> yeah. that people don't think about. But record keeping, the whole point is, you want to document a whole that you're doing a whole bunch of variety. So that's the big picture. Mm-hmm. The way that you do that in the day to day is um, I always point people to the ASB yeah. standard, which is published now. I think it's 25. It could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, that has to do, that's just the general um, documentation and kenneling. Um, all of the disciplines will come out with all the record keeping requirements, but uh, you know, what, what should you be keeping? Well, what's the date? What's your, who are you? What's mm-hmm. your dog's name? Some people have multiple dogs. Yep. Um, how long were you there at training? How long was your subject or your target mm-hmm. out? Um, what was the size of the area? 40 acres, 20 acres, half an acre. Um, and then what happened? Did your dog find the mm-hmm. target? Did your dog do its trained final response? What is your dog's trained final response? (laughs) Uh Um, For search and rescue, if you do other stuff, let's say you're doing a scenario, give yourself credit. So my training, Mm. oh, number one, what is your training objective? Yes. This is one of my big frustrations. I'm sure you guys are starting to see it. Mm -hmm. What would you like to work on today? I'd just like to do a 40-acre problem, Mm -hmm. one or two people. Uh, I'll call you when I get close to where I want you to walk in and sit. They're not even putting people out to sit to create no. that realistic. Situation. Exactly. So I always ask, so, okay, 40 acres, are you working on stamina? Cause you don't need to do that right. in a search problem. You can mm-hmm. go out and hike. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's not, uh, there certainly could be a reason to have an acre size or a amount of time worked as your objective, but much of the time, and I think you can appreciate this, Natalie, you should be thinking from a training perspective, mm-hmm. is this a dog thing right. or is this a me right. thing? Am mm-hmm. I working on strategy? Am I working on 
um, teaching my dog how to negotiate a complex scent picture like willows. Right. That in the wind or a mm-hmm. high wind. Or mm. when you have um <clears throat> you're on a a ridge line and you've got the subject on the other ridge line and you've got the wind going, you have to teach a dog how to solve that problem because they cannot jump. They right. have to go down out of scent mm-hmm. and figure out like, okay, I remember uh, I had the scent, I went down, I lost it, and I have to just keep going and I'll go back. You have to teach, and you can't teach a dog that. And initially they like, oh, I lost it, I go back up. Oh, I lost mm-hmm. it, I go back up. Until, right? That's the kind of objective you might yeah. want to have is mm-hmm. we got wins and I'm going to go teach my dog how to solve a ridge jumping problem. Mm-hmm. Put right. that in and say, I did that by putting a subject on the opposite side of the ridge and waited until my dog figured it out or had the subject call them when he got out of mm-hmm. scent or whatever it is you want to do. Mm-hmm. And um, that way, if you run into trouble somehow, some mm-hmm. way later on, and mm-hmm. they're like, well, you clearly missed him because he was on the opposite ridge and your dog isn't any good, you can be like, no, actually, my dog knows how to solve that. Yeah. Right. Maybe when um, when we were there, the subject actually wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Which... I'm going to circle back to something in a second. So in you, as teams are doing this kind of training, like you said, you're documenting all these different variables, these variables match. How often should you be also going back to your fundamental exercises and documenting those doing simple things like, like lineups or alert focus, you know, working on the indication with a dog and things like that. <clears throat> I love to do those fundamental stuff uh-huh. hunt games i think yep. we talked about this yep. hunt games just for the ball yep i do that for the whole life of my dog um for search and rescue people like uh life find they we call them runaways yep uh or pop-ups where mm-hmm. the dog literally you hold on to the dog the person runs off jumps behind a tree a rock a building mm-hmm. you let the dog go and the dog's like oh my god they love that yeah a lot of handlers feel like they should never do that again. They feel like it's a baby stuff. It's a it's baby stuff, and they're not looking at it from the dog's perspective, which is, oh my god, this is the so easy and so fun. And dogs don't always want to do it for six hours. They yeah. want to search for six hours yeah. and find nothing. Mm-hmm. Or it's you know it's ninety degrees out, and it's maybe you're I don't know in. Indiana is like 80% humidity and mm-hmm. your hair is big and the dog cannot <laughs> <Yeah>. shed heat. <clears throat> you want to be able to Keep go back fun. and remind the yeah. dog, like, I know that usually it's a search. So we break them on searches. We all know that. And after you do a search and it's really hard, don't recreate that the next time. Mm-hmm. Do some fun. Remind your dog, hey, man, it's you and me. Yeah. This gets back to the handler part, that yeah. relationship part. Hey, man, it's you and me. That sucked. Trust me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I got blisters. <laughs> but this is why we do it. It's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, you should want to play with your dog. Yeah. You should want to do the stuff where your dog gets to shine and you feel good because look how good my dog did. And those foundation parts, mm-hmm. they help maintain the relationship between dog and handler. Very positive. Um it helps sharpen those critical behaviors. That's the whole point of doing it, right? Mm-hmm. Is you're doing those basic skills that you want your dog to maintain. That's going to disintegrate three days in yeah. you know, to your search yep. with finding nothing. So you're absolutely right. What's, as a subject matter expert in reviewing records, what is 
something that you frequently see omitted that stands out like a red flag for you? Like, oh, look, again, I don't see anything about whatever. What would be something that's constantly missed or not documented nearly enough that should be that would help? In detection, it's um, blind negatives. Okay. So every single time the dog gets out of the car, there's at least one thing to be found. Mm -hmm. Um, And handlers do still to this day, they do not understand that if you work in a blank area and you know it's blank. It doesn't count. count. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, I I would definitely say that um it, it i'm glad to see it getting better but it definitely has to get you know more frequent people willing to do what, what i'll use a term nathan used dr hall um all clears searches that are blind to you that are all clear <clears throat> and can you successfully search whatever that thing area whatever it is and come back to whoever set this up and say there's nothing here and it's important to document that because anything that is any instrument, in this case a dog, is used to give us an affirmative, it should equally be as proficient at showing us the negative. And But the human side of it, handlers and stuff, we want to see our dogs find things. And we always want to, well, my dog, will, my dog won't like it if I don't find anything. Are you kidding me? That's a, that's an important part. In fact, in most cases, and on the most recent research that Dr. Hall has been doing, the by having more negatives, when something a positive is put in, the dog becomes even more dramatic about, whoa, here it is, than the constant finding it all the time. And I'm glad you brought that up as a point because um, I've been trying to share that with teams far more often be willing to do searches that are unknown to you that have nothing. I just did that with um, the local, the last seminar we did. I just, you know, you know, when we show up to training as handlers, I don't care who you are. In many cases, you go into it going, we're going to find something. This is training. This is, you know, um, I can give my perspective of the cop world is it's okay. Let's hurry up and throw some hides out. Let's say we put out marijuana or sorry, no, that's not out. That's out. Now it tells you my, how dated I am. <laughs> Meth, heroin, cocaine. Let's throw that out real quick. Or now fentanyl. Let's throw that out real quick. And okay, let's go to lunch. And we throw, we have four or five rooms. We have an odor per room. Uh, but we did a blank search, Cameron. There's a blank room there. Or there's a blank the car. Hallway, and the hallway was the blank. hallway is blank. Yeah. That doesn't count. <laughs> Um, though that search is blind to you, you knew there was something there. So what I did to this group was I took their training aids, went in like I was going to set up, had them come in. I said, you have these two rooms, go search them. Here's a camera, put a camera on them and let them go do their thing. And we debriefed afterwards. I always de-conflict our training after we're done. So as each handler came out, they tell me what their response was or no response and I wouldn't say, I say, okay, great. Well, when we get done, I'll let you know what happens. And of course, handlers being handlers, handlers see other handlers walking out with a dog, their dog holding a toy in their mouth. So they automatically gamed themselves where there's something there, not knowing that some handlers just gave their dog the toy when they were done searching. And that was, that had a bias effect on some of the handlers. Now, thank goodness, um, we only had, we only had one handler call, like was sure there's something here. Another handler let himself get talked into it because he just hedged his bet. You know, his gut said no, but he didn't want to say no himself. So he called it. 
Uh, the other handlers all said there's nothing here. Great about all of them. But the best part was when we deconflicted and watched each dog run on video, everybody learned from each other's video. Everybody saw something that the other one did. And what I was circling back to earlier was the use of technology now in detection, the use of video more frequently. Obviously, on law enforcement, they have body cameras on them all the time. The time. Well, true. There, there. I will. You're right. There are plenty <laughs> of there. There are some too. agencies that do not, but we're greater than fifty percent of the agencies that have requirements for officers to have body cameras. Even if it's not the canine handler, there's another officer there or vehicle camera, etc. The the amount of footage of teams on deployments or in training is increasing. In my day and age, we were told, don't video anything. You put right. that on there, it's going to be subpoenaed in court. Da, 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 da. It's going to show that you're... You shouldn't have anything to hide. Exactly. That's my point. I have... I, there isn't a person on this planet that says dogs are perfect. Well, there are some. Well, I mean, but with I the, the legal with system, that. yeah. the legal, we, we all know there's no perfect human being right. and there's not a perfect dog. My dogs are perfect. Yeah, yeah yes, exactly. <laughs> Let's just be clear. Yes, Despite yeah. their flaws. Uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> they, and, and we have to be willing to be transparent about where we're at. You know, it, there's the fear of if, – if you fear showing the problems, then you probably shouldn't be doing the job is mm-hmm. the flip side to that, I say. Um, or you need to go through remedial training, get back to the point where you're confident again, and then you can go out there and do it. If you fear – Others watching or your fear video footage. Now, we can get into a whole other side of things where there's we call TTPs, training tactics and principles that we don't want to share with the general public. I get that. That's totally fine. But when we're talking general training things like this, the use of video can be extremely helpful and even bolster the case of a canine team showing that they do these things, you know. It used to be, you know, if it, you didn't write it, it didn't happen. And unfortunately, in this day and age, right or wrong or indifferent, if people don't see it, they may not believe it. So go ahead. Um, just before we jump into that, I just wanted to say on the record keeping side, yep. if you guys want to learn more about record keeping, we do have a webinar um, with Dr. Mary Cable on our website, and it is called Canine Defensibility. There you go. So if you want to learn more about that, check that out. And then uh, I didn't have anything to add to the talk. Wow, will, look at you. You turned say, in my little commercial right here in the middle of the podcast. Yes. <laughs> I will say um, on the camera side, like as somebody like Sheree and I used to film our stuff constantly, but it is a little different when you're wearing it. Um, but you definitely get more used to that. Like even when we were when I was talking to some of the guys, like you're at first, you're kind of like stiff with it and it messes you up a little bit because you're not used to that. But yeah. eventually you do kind of desensitize to it. And it and then and then it's super nice to be like, oh, cool, I have it on video because, you know, X and y just happened. watching the dog's behavior. Yeah. So so what I was going to bring up in search and rescue, I'm starting to see more search and rescue teams wearing body cameras while they're out searching. I've even heard uh, a friend of mine who's a search and rescue handler over in Holland they purposely do it along with their GPS, and they can overlay video footage to mm-hmm. where they've been. Uh, and, and it helped out, particularly in a case where a person had murdered somebody, had seen the news, and seen where all these canine teams had been searching, because the news was love love showing dogs walking in, through an area and doing stuff. 
Well, when they were gone, I guess it was like two days later, this individual put the body in that area. Sure, because it had already been covered. Correct. So all of a sudden, when the body was found by somebody walking by or whatever, what did it make the search teams look like? Like they didn't know what they were doing. Thank goodness they had their cameras and they went back and they overlaid the footage at that location and they had been through there. There was no body there. So what it really helped the case was then they went back and were pinging phone towers Mm. and lo and behold, that individual who was a suspect was pinged in that area. So right around. figure out that timeline. So it too. was one of those, exactly. Yeah. It was a really good piece of critical evidence that made a difference. And I am seeing, whether it be from GoPro or you know your typical action cameras, I'm seeing teams being willing to do that. What has been, what have you seen and has that increased from what your side of things? I know you asked the other day about a body camera, so I wasn't sure how that. That was for a different A different reason, use. But yeah. the thing that you were talking about with the stiffness. <clears throat> so I have been using uh, GoPros for a long, long time. And I typically wear them on my head. Mm. And uh, I get a lot of comments about how beautiful I look with my <laughs> headwear. Um, but here's the thing. So I recently got one for my for my chest. The chest rig, yeah. Um, and I do a ton of water work. And oh, I yeah. video a lot of mm-hmm. my water stuff. Um, what is really interesting for handlers that I use this for me as a trainer is you should be watching your dog Mm -hmm. the whole time. And yes, the whole dog, but certainly for a detection, this part of your dog, yeah, because the last place this part of your dog is before it does whatever its final response is, Mm -hmm. that's where your target is. When you have your camera on your chest, um, you may not capture everything, especially search and rescue in particular, we have a search pattern and we are walking and maybe our dog is over there. And if you're watching your head cam oh, true, is yeah. going to capture yep. your dog, but your chest camera is not, it's different for water. Cause we're always mm-hmm. facing the front. <clears throat> so I also use that a little bit as a diagnostic when I first put a camera on a handler's head, because if I'm mm. not seeing the dog in the frame the whole time, they're not watching. Yeah. I know that oh, my handler yeah. needs a little bit of training because they're not watching their dog. Now. Yeah. Sometimes it makes you sick because you're watching, looking at your feet <laughs> and you look at your dog. Cause let's face it, you know, you can fall down and hurt yourself. Yeah. So I use that a little bit as a diagnostic and I think that's a little bit, it's a slightly different use to train the handler. We're talking a lot about handlers yeah. To teach them, are you looking at your dog? Because let's review your video. And if I only see your dog at, so for example, let's say the handler knows where the subject is, mm. and that's the only time the dog's in the frame. <laughs> yeah, dogs they they know. Oh, for sure. Watched. Like they completely read us. Yeah, and that gets into cueing and bias and mm-hmm. all that. I, I share, and this came from uh, Doctor Hare's. Uh, cognition research, but one of the lines that he shared that I share in every cognition class I do, there is no animal on the planet that has the unique ability to read human communication and intention better than a dog. So if your bias is showing, your dog will usually read it. And that bias comes out in a number of different ways. Could be you know, the speed of which you're walking, the position of your body, everything that we're mentioning. Do you stop talking suddenly? Yes. Do you mm-hmm. start talking? Yeah. So um, I ask, I think- ask a handler, do they use when people are following them on searching, when everybody's talking, everybody shuts the fuck up. And then all of a sudden everybody's like, all heads are peeking into your room. What do handlers start doing? Right. Oh, there's something here. Well, don't worry. Your dog does the same thing to you. Yes. You're just not picking it up. Yeah, I think um I think video is is very powerful. It's a 
Nobody likes to see themselves on video. Yeah. A few people oh, do. Yeah. I don't. Um, but once you get over that, yep. uh, it, it is very valuable. And actually, we used it a little bit um, yesterday. So I think in terms of from the legal side, record keeping, mm-hmm. policies and procedures, that's another thing that search and rescue groups, um, some are very good at having policy and procedures. Um, some are not. Some it's just a legal bylaws, and it's not a standard operating procedure. I encourage them to create standard operating procedures. And if you're going to use video, there's nothing wrong with saying, "Hey, we use video, um, and we delete it after mm-hmm. five days or some set amount of time." Yeah. Where you get into trouble is you have tons of video. Maybe you put it on Facebook, which I don't have a problem with. Mm-hmm. I have some videos of mm-hmm. docs. Yep. Because I'm not perfect. And I mean, he did perfect. (laughs) But the point being that if you have a whole bunch of video and then suddenly something goes awry and you get subpoenaed and you delete all your video. Correct. Oh, yeah. You're going to be in a world of hurt. Or the metadata now, because everything's a lot of things are computerized. If you quickly upload all this data into your logs mm-hmm. and we can look at the metadata yes. and you did it the week before or a week after you were you, it was uh, subpoenaed or requested for information, um, shows that you're also probably either A, lazy, or B, trying to spruce some things up. Right, because um, an aspect, what the record keeping is, you need to do the record keeping after the training. When right? it's fresh yes. in your mind, yes. you know, when you can review things. I mean, when do law enforcement officers do the report? They don't do it weeks later. They have to do it right after this incident occurred or they've been called there to investigate whatever it is because that information is fresh. You're documenting what occurred. Um, and anybody will tell you when you have to interview somebody regarding something that happened a significant time ago, let's say weeks, months, their memory of the incident and what they're going to document is totally different than what they might have put right after you, if they, you asked them to do it within an hour or two of seeing something. Um, it's super important. And again, I get that all the time, which is, well, I don't want them subpoenaing my, I, I have d- the memory cards I use and I have seen some good search and rescue teams that do this. They give each handler the memory card at the end of the search that handler returns the memory card back to oh, yeah. the search team. So it's not even, so even if they're using their GoPro, the memory card was provided by the search rescue group or so the property of the data belongs to that. The device that captured it didn't have to belong to the agency. I, I have, th- I think that's, are you talking about handlers who are afraid their phone's going to get taken? That's a big one. Or now because of the use. And just like you said a minute ago, I laugh that people that say that are the same ones that put all their shit on TikTok, Instagram, <laughs> right. and then all of a sudden now they're afraid of, I'm like, do you know all I got to do is go to your social media and watch all the stupid shit you did there? And, you know, so if you're so worried, then maybe you shouldn't put anything out there or what you're about ready to say. I have yet to see a civilian how they're electronic device taken from them um, depending on your, on where you are in your jurisdiction. So this is not a universal thing. I'm not recommending this to people, but if you are a handler and you work regularly with detectives, if you have the training to, and you remember with the dog, you're the first on site Mm -hmm. on scene. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they may want you to document it because you are the first one there before anybody else Any footprints that are there, there's going to be paw prints. Mm -hmm. And hopefully they're not really yours because you 
or have the training and experience yeah. to understand, like, I don't need to go tromping through here. All of that is evidence. You mentioned um, crime scene preservation. I actually developed a crime scene preservation for canine handlers course mm -hmm. because there's an added layer of yeah. stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's there's just, yeah, the dogs and there's, it's just an added layer of stuff. Yeah. And um, so you're the first one there and you want to take pictures. Sometimes uh, you find something and it's questionable or actually sometimes more and more nowadays, the IC want the incident command wants you to take a picture and text it to them so they can make a decision about whether it's relevant or not, if they mm -hmm. want to collect it, all of that. So you're going to be taking pictures of stuff. Yeah. Regardless, they're not going to take your phone. Yeah. I, I just, now that I say that. It's <laughs> <laughs> On the law enforcement side, it has come up where uh, an officer, I don't know, for whatever reason, used their phone to, like you said, document something. And then uh, through deposition or whatever, they say, yes, this is what I use. Then, of course, that got seized, not seized, but, you know, downloaded for the information that was on there. And, um, you know, that can come with some embarrassing things, I think, for some individuals. <laughs> uh, so they get worried about that. The other aspect is, yes, in that kind of field of work, you should use department-issued data collection. Sure. So just like in this situation, they gave them memory cards. The memory cards, the data goes directly to the memory card, not on your device. It's not stored locally. And then that's that that has been turned in by the handler to whoever the supervisor is for you know, preservation. And training can be done the same way. You guys can use whatever devices you use, put your memory card in, and just say, this is the memory card that we use strictly for training. And then if these things get subpoenaed with training records, go right ahead. Give it to them. Show them, you know, the things that – how training looks. Every handler knows their dog is bound to do something that wasn't exactly desired. But how did you navigate it and how? what corrective action did you take to address it? That's normal. That's every – I don't care what discipline you're in. You have to you, – you have to do some type of corrective action somewhere – the dog or you made an error and the dog responded to what you did or didn't do. And that needs to be talked about. It needs to be documented because we're in a day and age where transparency counts, truthfulness counts. Stop trying to hide these things that we all go through. There isn't a dog team out there that hasn't gone through. Uh, I didn't expect that to happen. Just put a demo on and, and, and watch what happens the minute you do a demo. Yeah. Or, or go to a competition yeah. and, or a certification and watch what happens. It's amazing how shit that the dog has – my dog's never done that right. until this. So we all know it. We all know this happens. Don't be scared. It's it a reality. But to that point, it, that, shouldn't be, um, that shouldn't be typical. Once your dog is certified, mm -hmm. the, the errors, the mistakes. They should drop, but as we all know, many teams – don't get enough training time. So even though there are deployable, it, Bob Bailey did a great example of that. He's like, there's proficiency and fluency. And proficiency, the rate of error is still there. Mm -hmm. Fluency, it's, it's I won't say non-existent, but it's your flu you can do things right. without even thinking about it. Yeah. Yes. And like he brought up, especially today, so many things are pushed through that when they're out there, they're still at proficiency state. They, mm -hmm. It takes a little bit of time and then they hit fluency state. But he, like we talked about, it's actually, it shows 
if you keep staying in proficiency stage, well, then there might be something that is going on that needs to be addressed bigger picture. But to your point, um, we should be, you know, especially when you're uh, safety, um, legal things, we should, our goal should be, we should be pretty damn fluent at doing that job to protect people and or their rights when we're working our dogs. And if you have like what you're saying, a corrective action that you took, it should be that, okay, you took this action, you know, mm-hmm. training plan, whatever, and then you're showing, look, now we're not having this issue because we addressed it. Yes. So if if you're if it's not getting addressed or your corrective action is not working, then... Or you don't even put it down and you just pretend it never happened. <laughs> well, we see that at the on the um, narcotic side. Mm-hmm. Um, I get asked this more and more mm-hmm. actually which has to do with distractions inside of a vehicle pet dogs yeah um and the officer will inevitably say uh yeah my dog it's not the dog wasn't a problem mm-hmm. and when i'm mm-hmm. looking at um cases the ones that are um relevant for me are the ones where the dog does not do its trained behavior yeah because we're talking about probable cause. Mm -hmm. And so when you have a pet dog in a car or a bag full of McDonald's, whatever it is. Um, and the, the officer says, uh, well, I just read my dog's behavior and the behavior was not related to whatever was happening in the car, but there's, and I, and I promise you Mm -hmm. that that's not the reason, Mm -hmm. but there's nothing in the training record. I was going to say that shows that they've been through this before. To document that they've looked at that. There's nothing in the training records Mm -hmm. that shows there's been any kind of a challenge. Um, That would probably be the number two thing when you asked about what do I see that's missing. Um, Our our genuine uh, training with distractions. So we see the attempted masking odors, and we've talked Mm -hmm. about that. Mm -hmm. But that's not the same thing as a distraction. Correct. Mm-hmm. Like audible, visual, all those levels of distractors. Right. Yeah, for sure. Right. No, so. that's that's a great point. I mean, and um they it's funny because in when it's bite work related, a lot of law enforcement teams come up with really cool and unique challenges to expose your dogs to because they see or they've been through it where holy crap, I didn't think that would happen. Or that somebody else's dog goes through an incident where a guy's running around naked in a bed sheet and they're like, Ooh, I haven't trained that one before. And they go all you know, they go all in and they'll they'll come up with these different scenarios, which is fantastic. Expose a dog to different pictures of what they're gonna see. Um detection many times doesn't get that same level of attention where they do, like you said, hey, that dispatcher, doesn't she have a cute little corgi or something? It's good with dogs, right? And they go through, let's put that in a car or for safe purposes, let's put it in a crate in a car right? and have our dogs do a search. Now, the trainer, if they're really on their game, won't tell the handlers whether there's odor present or not. Don't set it up as, we're going to go put an odor out and do a search with a dog in the car. Let's see what happens in a randomized way. Mm-hmm. Now- if we see that these dogs, and again, this is this allows the handler to remove any potential mental bias they have because it's training that they should find something. If I'm the trainer, I'm going to say, guys, I'm not telling you. Just navigate the problem based on what I presented to you. Just do it. And they go through and they have their lessons learned from it. They see that it works, it didn't work, what dogs, you know, our handlers struggled because of it, or 
let's say it was a blank and handlers are calling alerts because back to the point that you were kind of illustrating, maybe the dog was interested in the fact that there was another barking dog in the car. Or as I've seen many times myself as a cop, these cars are so filled with shit and trash and these people live in that damn thing. And the amount of odors coming from that are always going to be interesting to a dog. And the dog, you know, cataloging all of these different smells that are coming from there can look somewhat like a behavior known to be when my dog is about ready to or investigating its known target, which is why when me and you talk about Natalie is, um, you know, when we, we, we do a training with classes is at the end of the day, they have to write down what their dogs did when they smelled cat piss. What did their dog, write down in detail, what did that look like? What did it look like when they smelled the McDonald's bag? What did it look like when they smelled all the crap and we were doing bed bug dogs or whatever? And then write down in detail what it looked like when their dog had odor. But every day, it's not, you have to write it out. Not cut and paste, not anything else. Write it out. And writing it out and then watching it on video, you start to see, did they write down what was on video? And the more that they do this as a handler, the better they get at actually recognizing those subtle differences between the trash to target odor. And, but forcing the human to write it out makes you actually slow down, think about, and digest what was there. And in some cases, does your memory truly reflect what's on video? Because that's the other aspect of today, which is, Video becomes the perception, right, wrong, or indifferent. That point of view is what you get to see. Um, And then that can go under perception, you know. So if a handler's records were, or the the incident, uh, the report says, my dog did this, and then we watched a video and we're like, where was that at? I don't see that. Because they cut and pasted. Actually, cops do that. Yeah. um, Because the video is... That's what happened. Yeah. And the report and the video, you, you would not think that would happen with mm-hmm. a vehicle sniff. Yeah. And it does. No, I, I, like I said, even when I test it and I put, you know, I have them in training, do it. Some of it's just bad recollection, bad recollection of what they did. You just um, forget, so you just put what you, 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 you all, you're, it's, it's, you do it with, you get it with witnesses all the time. They, what they saw in their head was different than what really yes. happened. Yes. And there's that mental, whatever it was, the connection. But what they failed to do before they wrote the report was review the video to make sure to refresh them. Some of this, some of this, I got to say some, some of it comes down to laziness, just cut and paste from what I've done before. So it all looks the same from my previous deployments. So look, there's consistency there. The only thing that needs to be consistent is and predictable is what your dog's behavior is at the odor. How does it report to you it found it? That should be consistent and predictable. Now, what happens is, you know, a number of circumstances go on. They see this thing and they go into this interpretation mode. Mm-hmm. I interpreted the tail wags this time. I interpreted the left nostril twitching. Okay, is that in training? Where do you have that written down in training as one of the cues that you see that's predictable, reliable, and so forth? That's true. And yeah. um, that's... They say, no, I know my dog. Yeah. Okay. But you can't be the only one. <laughs> I think they should be. Well, no, I'm saying, but if you can't, the science can't be so subtle that nobody even there knows what happened. You and I are in agreement. Yeah. I'm just saying yeah. that um, that's often an argument. Oh, of course. No. And, and, I, and I have these discussions with them in training so that way we can discuss, 
let's let's have something a little more. Let's when anybody else is watching, they could go, "Ooh, I see that." Yeah. So here's this is something that I think maybe the law enforcement world could learn from search and rescue. Mm-hmm. Search and rescue handlers f- alerts, final responses. They're really obvious and mm-hmm. they're designed to be really obvious. That recall refind, that dog will hit you, the properly trained dog, it'll hit you on any side because at night, in the rain, when it's dark, whenever, the dog needs to communicate, hey, I found the person, and there's no question about what is happening. or Mm -hmm. And so these volunteer handlers, some who are geographically isolated, who do not have access to a regular trainer of any sort who are doing it themselves still manage to mm-hmm. train mm-hmm. these really good rock solid bomb proof dogs that will come back and jump on them mm-hmm. or bark at them. And there is no question in anybody's mind that they yep. have found the subject. Yep. So that, I think that if the general population of dog people can train that nose work, people mm-hmm. are training beautiful final responses. I think law enforcement can do it too. And, and I'll steal a, uh, a phrase that my friend Annie Wyman uses. It needs to be demonstrative that basically even a layman who's standing there can yes. go, oh, I see that too. You know, this it's is what my dog does. Yeah. So, yeah, it's all good. It's important that these things, um, you know, we have these discussions so that way we could all learn from each other's you know, either our errors or our data or all these different things to help us become better. Um, so speaking of that, if people, like you said, you're starting to do more education and training, how do people reach out to you to find you or say, hey, I want you to come over and do training with us or teach us all these SOPs that we should probably have for <laughs> our, our search and rescue group? How do they get a hold of you? Um, they can... Can you list my email address? I'll just have you list it. Okay, perfect. Because a good friend of mine said, why did you use so many letters? (laughs) (laughs) So we'll put that in. I'll put it on the screen. Yeah. And then I'll have it in the show notes of the podcast. So if you're listening, you'll see it in the the show notes. And if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see it on the screen. You can Google me. Yeah, that's too. um, Yep. If you just type my name in, C-A-B-L-K. Yep. Not C-A-B-L-E. No. Not C-A-B-L-E. Or there's no I in there. Yeah. The K is for there for fun. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yes, many, many ways to, to get a hold of me. Yep. Um, and I'm very glad to do that. Um, most of the training that I do is by request. Mm-hmm. Um, I am looking at getting that crime scene preservation for canine handlers, yeah. potentially uh, California Post certified nice. as a course. Um, and uh, and that's something that I'm looking at scheduling for, for this year. Um, so I'm... I'm eager and keen yeah. to, to get out. That would there. be a great class. I mean, I think a lot more people that are doing more of these um, assistance of law enforcement for crime scene, mm-hmm. you know, looking for human remains or evidence. It's, it's critical because I, because even the detectives many times don't know that the handlers don't know these things or don't even know um, how to tell a handler. They sometimes they expect if you're there at a crime scene, you won't do this. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, you're, you're out there doing it. Uh, I think both sides of the equation would benefit from understanding what a canine and how a canine gets used on a deployment like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I developed that, that class because I had a case 
a very unusual case, and I had to do all of the crime scene preservation stuff, in, including working with detectives on. It was just so unusual, and I thought, you know, this is one of those uh, trial by fire, mm-hmm. and it would be really helpful to for people to be thinking about this, to be prepared for it in advance. Um, and the guy actually ended up, um, I think he took a plea deal, mm-hmm. and so he's uh, – He's in jail for life with no parole. Yep. Yeah. There you go. So, all right. Well, perfect. Well, I'm so glad you were able to come on the show and give us more good information again. And now people can go reach out to you and say, hey, like I said, come over here and do my SOP for me. <laughs> can, I, can I just cut and paste your SOP? So, and Natalie, thank you for being the co-host here. Yeah, thank, and, and thank you for answering my questions. That was a great discussion. Yep. Well, everybody... Thank you for watching and listening to Canines Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy.